The Sunday Baroque podcast is made possible by WSHU and the Friends of Sunday Baroque. You can find out more about the Friends of Sunday Baroque and find out how to become one yourself by visiting our website, sundaybaroque.org, under the Contact tab. Kroll is a musician. He plays harpsichord and forte piano. Early Music America named him the 2020 recipient of the Howard Meyer Brown Award for Lifetime Achievement in the field of early music for his distinguished half-century career as a performer, scholar, educator, and advocate for early music. Mark Kroll joins me via Skype to talk about his life as a musician. Welcome. Thank you, and it's a delight to speak with you. As I told you just before, I love your show, and I love listening to you and the music you play. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, congratulations on your award from Early Music America. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So it's a pretty challenging time in the world for a lot of reasons. So before we get into the music part of, of the interview, I want to just ask you, how are you doing? Well, being of whatever they call, uh, you know, the uh, what's the word they use? Uh, vulnerable age for this virus, you know. I'm being very careful as well as I can be. I'm doing fine. I have lots of work to do. I've started another book. I'm practicing. Um, boy, but I miss my colleagues. I miss, I lost out on some, it's a minor thing compared to how other people are suffering from this terrible disease, but I lost out on some wonderful concerts in April, May, and June. I was going to play in Helsinki, in Leipzig, at the Leipzig Bach Festival, etc. But it all, it pales in comparison for all these poor people who have suffered from this really nasty disease, but I'm doing fine, but I do miss my friends and colleagues a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about this award. What what does this award mean to you, especially in this very unusual time in the world? Well, it's uh, it's nice to uh, to still be here <laughs> at my at my age, and uh, I'm not that old, but it's. Um, it's not, I, as I told Karen Brooks at Early Music America, she was holding off the press release and I said, yeah, go send it. We need some good news. You know, she, and, and, and not only is it good news for me, but it's good news for my colleagues. I got some, we sent the press release out and I got some wonderful letters and messages, messages, email messages back congratulating me saying, I'm glad you're still with us, Mark. And, <laughs> uh, and colleagues that I've known, performed with, or work with for your, oh, I will age uh, about 60 years. Wow. 60 years. I started, uh, yeah, I, I started playing the harpsichord at the age of 17. Uh-huh. But actually 15. I'm not uh -huh. 77. I'm, I'll tell everybody. You can use the math. I'm 74. So there you go. <laughs> but so it, 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 but it was a nice also for me, of course, but it was a recognition from an organization that I support and have supported from its beginning. We needed something like that in America for so many years. And it's nice. Well, as anybody would say, it's nice to get recognition from your colleagues. So, 
many musicians I know who specialize in playing historical instruments and who are experts in performance practices, they describe falling in love with their instruments and finding a special affinity with the music and with the instruments that often surpasses what they experienced with a modern instrument that they play or with modern repertory. So I, I am curious, you said since you are seven, you've played the harpsichord. How? No, uh, 17. Oh, 17. <laughs> I'm sorry. Excuse me. Um, how did you find your way to playing the harpsichord? Because let's face it, 17 is also pretty young to, to suddenly find that passion for an instrument like the harpsichord. Well, especially in those years, which was there not many of us at that time, um, the story uh, is is a is a good one. Um, I, at the age I, I I was born and was living in New York City, which gives you lots of opportunity, and at the age of fourteen. I started to hear concerts by the New York Pro Musica. There's a name out of the past, isn't it? And then a year later, I heard Ralph Kirkpatrick perform both books of the Will Templeton Clavier on the same day, afternoon and then evening. And I said, "Hmm, what is this?" And I was, re but I was starting to get hooked. And then by the age of seventeen, I gave up my goals to become the next Vladimir Horowitz on the piano. Did a complete about face, U-turn, uh, whatever it is, 180 degrees, and committed myself to the harpsichord and to its music. And now, when you're 17, you know you know things, but not enough. But you do have the excitement and enthusiasm. And I went to it into it so completely, and I've never looked back. I loved what was it about it? I loved the music first, and I loved the sound of the harpsichord. And then I'm going to also say, I love the expressive potential of the harpsichord. And some of your listeners say, expressive potential? He must be mistaken. But I've always known that that instrument, that's why I dedicated myself. I wouldn't want to play an instrument that can't inflect and be expressive and beautiful. And that, my instrument, my chosen instrument, can do all of that as well as any others and in a special very elegant and restrained way. And so, you know, you, I heard the harpsichord and said, that's for me. Hmm. Well, you, you clearly have really made it your life's work. You've written seven books, and that yes. includes books about the history and the construction and the literature for the harpsichord. <laughs> so really, as one of the foremost experts, would you explain a little bit about the instrument so people can understand really the unique characteristics of them? And also, and this is a really important one, what are the differences from the piano? Because I think people who don't know musical instruments don't realize, you know, sort of what's inside that box. I'm happy to. Um, since I, uh, I, I, of course, spent my career teaching it and demonstrating and lecturing it as much. You know, you, in the 60s, you had to be a proselytizer for the instrument. There were very few of us, and nobody knew. There were very few harpsichords. I used to have to cart my harpsichord around the entire country in various vehicles in, uh, because there weren't any. Now, I, I just hop on a plane, and there's a good chance there's going to be a good instrument where I'm going. Same thing in Europe. Um, so what is the harp? A harpsichord is... The only similarity between a harpsichord and a piano is they both have keyboards. And that's where the similarity ends. The piano, P 
people have looked inside. They see you press a key, and <laughs> I'm going to uh, you uh, show my opinion. And they throw a hammer at a string. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. I mean, I, I all I wanted to do before I switched was be that kind of pianist. The harpsichord plucks the string with a little plectrum. It used to be made, of course, only of bird quill. And then they use, oh, or leather or various other material to pluck it. And now we use a wonderful uh, material. It was first made by DuPont. It was called Delrin. And now they're even better material. Plus, we also use bird quill. Okay, so what happens? When you pluck, what, my, what I tell my students is once you've hit the key, it's too late. <laughs> Which means... To, to make inflections and expressive uh, effects on a piano, you strike the key harder, softer, various touches. We learn that as pianists. But pressing the key down to the harpsichord is, once you've done it, you've done it. You've set, by the nature of the physics, the, the plectrum plucks the string. So you ha what happens, how do you make music on the harpsichord? Everything happens before you hit the key. All the music making in the harpsichord happens in between the notes. Now, what does that mean? That sounds complicated, but it's really not. What it is is that you have, it's called what we call articulation, which means you, you adjust the spaces between each note. And you can make it greater or less or none at all. You could overlap the keys. And with, and the, it's an infinite variety of touch and articulation. And with those techniques, and they're not easy, you can make a beautifully expressive inflecting instrument. And I always used to tell my students, you know, Bach and Handel and Scarlatti and Rameau and all of those, they wrote gorgeous expressive music, not to mention Francois Couperin, of course. Now, why would they write this gorgeous expressive music for the harpsichord, knowing that it couldn't be realized on the instrument. It makes no sense. So they knew how to do it. And so that's what you, you do. At first, you have to learn the very basics of articulation. Gradually, under a, an experienced harpsichordist's hands, uh, a pianist doesn't think, oh, I'm going to put four grams of weight on a key or six grams of weight. No, it's just as part of the technique. And this is what the harpsichordist does. He's constantly, or she, constantly adjusting the space. So if I hold down two notes together, which are not uh, notated, that second note of those two is going to sound softer, but I'm still holding down the first. If I increase the space, the second note will have some sort of accent. And the variety and the range of articulation is truly infinite. But uh, so nobody, no, except for harpsichordists, will realize what you're doing, nor they should they. But what they will hear was an instrument that makes inflections, expressive uh, um, effects, and stuff like that. It also has what I always like to say: the harpsichord has consonants, consonants, and vowels. Now, what does that mean? It means that vowels, as we know, when a singer sings, they're vowels. Uh, but consonants are, t are created by the attack of the 
plectrum on the string. So there's articulation. Piano is mainly a vowel instrument by, by its nature. Glenn Gould tried to make it a consonant instrument too, uh, but that's what's so wonderful. So you can make the harpsichord sing, speak, complain, roar like a, harps, like a Scarlatti uh, sonata, and uh, adjust the phrasing so it has the most delicious legatos you can imagine. Francois Couperin knew that the best, and he even wrote in his music directions with slurs and other symbols to tell you if you do it this way, it will sound beautiful. Wow. Huh. So, you know, like any instrument, there's a, there's a huge variety of harpsichords. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and there are the kinds that enthusiasts make from those kits oh, yeah. to, uh, to the kinds that you and other professional musicians play. As you said, you can pretty much count on going just about anywhere in the world and, and finding a, a good harpsichord. And some of these are authentic historical instruments, but some of them are reproduction. So what, what makes for a great harpsichord? What, you know, do these instruments last? Do they improve in a way that like a Stradivarius violin does. They get better. Okay. There's no question. And, you know, I've, I, uh, here's my commercial for this program. I've just finished completing uh, a 10 CD set of the complete harpsichord music of Francois Couperin, which is, without any argument, um, the most idiomatic music for the for the instrument and um so and i've recorded it on harpsichord builders we don't like to use the term copy so shall we say based on 18th and 17th century instruments but several of my recordings half of them are on original antiques whether I just recorded the one of the volumes was recorded, believe it or not, on a harpsichord built by Christian Kroll, built in 1776. No relation, unfortunately. If it were, I'd be a very rich man if I owned that harpsichord. So, so, and the antiques, no matter how closely you copy these or model your modern instrument on them, and builders today are capable of as great skill, as great a skill of building as they were then, but 300 years of aging and the choice of wood that they had then, I will always choose an antique if I can. They sound. Now, the problem is that antiques are also, remember, the harpsichord is a mechanical instrument and 300 years takes a toll on mechanics. And so you have to one that's completely restored and at this stage, <laughs> uh, I've played on so many harpsichords now. My old teacher said, well, Mark, I could play a concert on a tabletop. <laughs> uh, exaggeration. But um, so you have to have a very well-restored and well-regulated uh, antique as well as a modern instrument. And that's the problem with some of the kits, too. One of my, especially in the early years of my career, one of my greatest sources of anxiety is to go to a concert hall, usually the college, and the sponsor would say, oh, you'll be so pleased. Professor so-and-so built this harpsichord in his basement. 
And I say, oh, boy. <laughs> and I have to be polite. Right. But right. it was barely playable. Oh, so dear. So that's, that's, that's the range of the, uh, the kind. Remember, uh, sorry to go on like this, but you're, hey, oh. you're, you're talking my favorite subject. <laughs> it, it's the... It's the regulation of the action that makes the instrument because you have to be able to achieve what I said before, the most subtle gradations in touch and articulation. And if yeah. the keyboard doesn't let you do that, you might as well look for a tabletop. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, one can only one only needs to listen to you speaking about this and not have to know your resume, but you are a, a soloist, you're a chamber musician, you're a teacher, a scholar, a conductor, arts administrator, all all of that. And and you know, you got you got your start in those early years of that Baroque music revival. You alluded to this earlier. Mm -hmm. And I am just curious to know sort of the the changes you've witnessed over the years and some of the things, I don't know, do you have any pearls of wisdom? Like what what do you think about that whole arc of early music, Baroque music, as as it has grown and become sort of more mainstream? I mean, there, you know, conservatories now have uh, historically informed performance departments and, and things that, where they didn't have those back in the back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Let me add something. You've been so nice uh, telling your listeners uh, how wonderful I am. Let me continue. <laughs> Um, but I did, is going back to my initial, uh, my initial reasons and my goals that I set for myself when I switched over. One, I wanted to become a good harpsichordist. That goes without saying. I also wanted to teach. I also wanted to set up organizations and series that would help my colleagues find concerts. There are not a lot then. Getting back to your question, I also wanted to write both histories and how-to books, and you know because I also was trained as a, as if you will, a scholar, and um, and I and conduct. So I try to do keep a, a balance between teaching, scholarship, and performance. I got lucky. I I think I did okay, uh, especially starting out in the early, uh, starting at the beginning. And I watched with some dismay as the early music world changed. We went through a period which uh, uh, has been called not only by me, but it's a great uh, um, uh, title, Earlier Than Thou, <laughs> which means, you know, I'm more authentic than you are. And I'd always say there's no such thing as an authentic performance. And mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to say how I play it. And some well-known, not only harpsichordists, but conductors, especially in the 70s and 80s, uh, would say that because it was great marketing, mm -hmm. but it couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as an authentic performance. And I would always tell my students when they would ask me, what is the authentic performance practice to play this piece by Francois Coupra. And I would say to them, which day, Monday or Tuesday? Yeah. And but does anybody play the same way today? Did they ever? Did Liszt play the same way Monday and Tuesday? No. Um, so gradually this kind of um, uh, orthodoxy has softened a great deal. And uh, there's people are still more accepting of different camps. I wish there weren't any camps. 
my wife is a violinist, and I remember when five, five, her, five of her colleagues would come, they would all play, they would all play different, but they wouldn't say, well, you're wrong and I'm right. Unfortunately, in the harpsichord world, it was that way, but it's so much better now. Now, the answer to your other question, maybe it's because there's so many more of us now. You know, there are, uh, there are so many more departments of music that have harpsichord programs or, if you will, historical performance. There's so many names. It used to be authentic performance. Then it was period instrument performance, which is, it's not because you don't, a period instrument. What is a period instrument? And then it was historically informed performance. And that's not bad. You know, basically you want to learn, and the old joke is actually Nicholas Harnacord said this, I loved it. He said, you learn everything you can about every aspect of this music, and then when you walk on stage, forget it. <laughs> Which means make music. Yeah. So things yeah. are really in a good place now. Actually, unfortunately, it's these these departments and these programs have been hit by this virus like everything else. Sure. Yeah. But I don't know of one department of music in America, at least, that doesn't have at least one or two good harpsichords. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't say that even 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So yeah. many great builders, good teachers, good players. Hmm. I, I have to agree. I mean, Sunday Baroque started as a local program about 32 years ago. Wow. And... Um, you know, that in those was, you early were a child then, right? I, I was. A, it was my kindergarten project, and, <laughs> and you colored. You kept coloring uh, in between the lines. It was great. <laughs> exactly, um, but you know, I do remember exactly what you're saying. I mean, the the, the available recordings um, was you know was very limited, and to see that arc of how many more performers and 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 recording labels so even just the you know it used to be like musical heritage society recordings oh and you now, remember those oh. yeah and now you know now the the harmonia mundi and you know really very fine quality recordings of 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 this music is are is available so that is that is something i've seen and it makes a huge difference um so no, I, I may I just say you're 100 percent right i agree yeah. the recordings for better or for worse because uh have made a huge difference because not only have fans and musicians and scholars and just plain old listeners have been able to experience such a wide repertoire. Not only do you know Bach, Handel, and Scarlatti, and maybe Cooper, but you know Zelenka, mm -hmm. Bieber. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's just, the t those are big names now too. But right. in the 70s or 80s, they were not. Right, and, and go back and go back further than my field. You know, you know, Okagum and Lassus and all the wonderful Renaissance music too, and early stuff. It has been a true revelation of education, educating a public. Um, and here comes a true compliment. And your program has done so much to make that happen. Well, thank and you. I told you, I, I really, really, I've always admired it. And we, we need more still. You know what I mean? We well, need more you. programs like yours. Well, uh, thank to, you. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think it's, you know, hearing you talk to, you reminded me about how we really have learned about all of these other composers. And I think, you know, I think it, it builds on itself that what happens is you get some momentum. People hear wonderful performances of music by the biggies, and then they think, I wonder who they're 
contemporaries were, their colleagues, you know, and, and I think it feeds on itself. And then we hear, you know, then we learn of some little piece in an archive, like the Vivaldi edition with the, you know, the, the stuff in the archive in Turin, or we hear, you know, so I think that it builds on itself. People get curious and hungry for it. And then there's a desire to hear more and, and, uh, and, and broaden our, our horizon. So, yeah. yeah. The audience for early music has been, it's, it's, it's tapered a little bit, but, but it has been as big and as great, if not greater than in 1726. <laughs> well, well, well. So I have to tell you something. This is something that I was really blown away um, when I was when I was reading up about you and your you know your body of work mm -hmm. um, for for our conversation today. I did not realize what a champion you are of contemporary literature for the instrument. And that, you know, I, I'm, I was looking at this list of people like Walter Piston and Henri Dutilleux and Ellen Tafe Zwillick and Gunther Schuller. I thought, wow, these are not composers we would normally associate with harpsichord. So could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, they're just, their musical languages are so different from Baroque era composers. So what, what kind of special challenges and pleasures are there of playing modern music on the harpsichord? Oh, you found me out. <laughs> <laughs> now, again, that was another one of my mini goals uh, because, you know, I wrote an article once about it. It says, you know, uh, I think I wrote in my book, Playing the Harpsichord Expressively, um, that the harpsichord disappeared from the scene, not as much as they think, and we don't want it to happen again. And I've always been an advocate for new music written for the instrument because then it becomes part of our culture. Remember, Bach's Italian concerto was new music. You know, uh, Rameau was you know, new music and all of that stuff. And we needed modern composers, contemporary composers, to add to the literature not only because that's a healthy thing, and then it becomes even more mainstream. That's my, that's my mantra, making the harpsichord mainstream. But they also brought, just like the 17th and 18th century composers did, their own different voice, their own different harmonic and melodic vocabulary to my beautiful favorite instrument. So, And it's fascinating to see. You mentioned Walter Piston. He did that quite early in the 40s, a violin and harpsichord. And yet... Uh, you look at a piece by uh, Ellen uh, Zwillick or uh, or uh, Goretzky wrote a Henrik Goretzky wrote a fabulous harpsichord concerto that would that would make <laughs> poor Bach turn over his grave. But you know, really, you know, if you know Goretzky's music, it's really dissonant. And I uh, I have a lot of contemporary harpsichord music harpsichord music on my shelf, but I only play about a foot and a half of it. Because a lot of the stuff is not so great. But there are masterpieces now, true masterpieces, each one exploiting a different aspect of the instrument, either historically or just because the, the composers fell in love with the sound of the instrument too. You could tell what a composer likes the sound of the instrument. And I've com commissioned quite a few works by composers. And usually what I do did and still do but is they would sit next to me if i could be with them and i would show them what the harpsichord could do and they said oh really oh that's interesting and then 
lo and behold, some of that stuff would appear. But there's some special effects a harpsichord can do, especially with two keyboards, that a piano cannot. And so I'm pleased that I that is an, I felt an important part of any performer's career, and certainly a harpsichordist's. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. So you just raised a point that I neglected to cover before when we were talking about the instrument itself. Two keyboards. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, okay. That doesn't mean that you can't have one or three. All right. You know, there are harpsichords with three keyboards and some with four. Uh, that you don't need. But why are there two keyboards? Well, you know, they don't have to be. And there's some people who feel that French harpsichords, which almost, well, not all, not, there's nothing, there was no standard. There are single manual French harpsichords too. But the French 18th century harpsichord was almost always two keyboards. Why? Well, for one thing, it added different colors. You could, you had the upper keyboard and low keyboard. Remember, these people were growing up in the era of organs too. So you had this, that's why they call it registration and stops, even though you're not pulling out stops on a harpsichord, you're not opening up a pipe. But it was the same concept of getting different sound, different colors that even articulation cannot achieve in terms of volume. And the upper keyboard of a harpsichord, because it's plucking closer to the nut, and any guitar player will know that if you, or if you pluck closer to the nut or the bridge, it's going to sound a little more nasal than you pluck closer to the, the, the neck or the middle of the, of, the, of the sound hole. And so you got those two sounds. And then they have incredibly clever devices, since I couldn't build a thing if I spent years doing it. Uh, they have things called the shove coupler, where you could slide the keyboard in and out and combine the stops. So a French harpsichord, and since the French culture, and Louis XIV was, Louis XIV had a lot of money. And so he could, if he wanted any kind of harpsichord, he could have it made for him, and he did. And so the French harpsichord in the 18th century became the norm, standard for many builders in the 20th century. There's another reason for that. The 1769 Pascal Tascan harpsichord at the Edinburgh Collection became a model for many builders in the 60s, and it was a good choice, great harpsichord. And, and so they would copy this, this double manual instrument with three sets of strings. Two of, the, each, there were, two of the sets were pitched at eight-foot pitch. Why is it called eight-foot pitch? Because it was the sound that an eight-foot-long organ pipe would make. Then you would have a set of strings about half the length, and that would give you an octave higher, hence the forefoot. So in the, in the parlance of harpsichord building and playing, you, your harpsichord is a two-manual harpsichord with two eights and a four. That's what that was. The Germans built a very different sound because each uh, national style had a different sound in their ears. Now, German harpsichords are big, massive, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and make a different, totally different sound than the French harpsichord than does the English harpsichord. And the Italian harpsichords, which were almost always a single manual instrument and very thin. An Italian harpsichord, in terms of the depth of its case, therefore the sounding box, is about half the depth of a French harpsichord. That's going to that's going to give you a totally different sound. 
Now, why did the Italian builders not really build big two manual harpsichords? Because they didn't need it. The, the composers were not writing harpsichord music in the 18th century. When you talk about Italian composers, what instrument of the 18th Baroque, what, do you, what instrument do you think of? Violin and Violin, voice. Of course, yeah. So very practical. And but so that's why you have and because of the wonderful thing about what we call national styles, there's a French harpsichord for French style, German harpsichord for German style, etc., etc. And oh, I so wish if I had won that lottery 30 years ago, that I could have <laughs> a different harpsichord for each national style. Oh. I don't. <laughs> How many harpsichords do you own? Well, I have fewer than I used to. Um, I have four. Okay. Uh, and then two forte pianos. Okay. And that's it. Uh, the problem is you have to tune them. And well, that's, this uh, is true. <laughs> and, and, and I live in Boston, so in the New England weathers are hell on the tuning yeah. stability for these keyboards. But yeah. that's more than enough that I, I've, I've given away or sold a few others, but I just don't need them anymore. Yeah. And, Every instrument that leaves my my studio is one less instrument to tune. This is true. <laughs> so you mentioned that your wife is a violinist. Uh, dare I ask how many violins she has? Sure, I bet. My wife is not only a violinist, but she also, uh, Carol Lieberman, Lieberman is her name. Uh -huh. And we have been playing together for 50 years. Oh, wow. How do you like that? And, uh -huh. and recorded, we were the first Americans to record the Bach, complete six sonatas for violin and harpsichord of Bach on a Baroque violin and harpsichord. Oh, wow. And we did, we also did our very first recording we made, is talk about unknown and uh, uh, undeservedly unknown composers, our violin sonatas of Simone Le Duc. Huh. There were these great French violinists in the mid 18th century, Guignon, Leclerc, yeah. and Le Duc is probably, was probably one of the best. He died young. So we rec that was the first record record maybe made because we just you know you're reading through the repertoire. So she um, uh, she plays both modern and baroque violins, and far better musician than I am. I better say that even though she's not listening, uh, <laughs> she also <laughs> she also has great great tolerance for me because you know how much space a harpsichord takes. <laughs> and so and I said I'm going to buy another harpsichord, dear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she just looks at me and says, okay. Yeah. But <laughs> she has many more violins and bows than I have harpsichords. Okay, well, that was part of the reason I asked. I have friends who are guitarists, and uh -huh. they also tend to be collectors. <laughs> so. Well, I would love that too, but uh, <laughs> I, there's just so much wall space. This but, is yeah. true. And, this is true. And she had, you know, and... You know, and the bows are even more interesting to me. I know we're talking about harpsichord and me, but I would go bow shopping with Carol and I would be amazed that I know her violin, but the bows made such a difference. Yeah. Each yeah, yeah. bow made the instrument sound so differently. It's the wonder of being a, an instrument builder and they are a breed unto themselves. Yeah. 
they yeah. they are you know they really they don't make a lot of money never did probably but and they take such care whether a bow is 52 grams or 47 grams yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. so so i want to know what's next for you you mentioned you're working on another book what what else is on your bucket list in the future and what what's that book about uh well Let's see, as as your audience might know, or um, if not, I'll tell them. Uh, I wrote biographies of some important composers from the 19th century, uh, Hummel and Moscheles, and uh, the Mo Hummel biography is, is definitive. Now, why do I dare say that? Because it's the only one in English. <laughs> uh, and But he really needed his time. He was, and Moshley's. And then I just uh, did a facsimile of Hummel's treatise, which teaches us a lot. For one thing that we know from that treatise, here's a little bit of a factoid that might be of interest. By 1827, they were always playing trills from the main note rather than from above. He tells you to. And then, and he says, unlike those earlier composers, <laughs> and, and he also said, there's only one way to tune, equal temperament. That's an interesting thing too. Um, and then of course I wrote uh, my harpsichord books and stuff like that. They could look on my webpage. I won't, I won't keep on talking about how great I am. And uh, <laughs> sorry, my next project is a new series being put out by Cambridge University Press. It's a small series. They call it Elements. And I'm, my book is going to be on Muzio Clementi. Now, there's a fellow. Now, if you're a pianist, you remember doing those Clementi exercises and you hated them. <laughs> only, only Cherny was worse. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, remember Cherny. Oh, you know, Opus 500 or something like that. <laughs> but if I didn't do those when I was a little kid, nothing was going to happen after that. And But Clementi is a fascinating character because he spanned the harpsichord era and the piano era. So that that is my project. And... I'm going to, in terms of recording, I said I would never make another recording again, uh, but I also said I never, would never write another book again. Never mind. Um, uh, I'm going to do a two or three box set, three CD set of the uh, sonatas of Domenico Scarlatti on various harpsichords. Um, you know, I, I studied with Ralph Kirkpatrick, who knew a, knew a little thing about Scarlatti. Yeah. And I remember now looking back 40 plus years, how much I learned not only about playing Scarlatti, uh, but he, he shared a lot of his experiences with me about writing that famous book in, in the 40s. So it's time to, time to throw away all my ornaments, <laughs> all three million of them. I mean, uh, you know, Francois Couperin has a lot of ornaments, as you probably have known, which makes it very difficult to record. Oh. It's one thing to play. Oh, yeah. You have an ornament on almost every note. You know, it's not so easy. Right. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll give you a wonderful quote by Charles Burney, who was a great, for your listeners, he was a great 18th century historian and critic of music. Very important. And he says, Francois Couperin's music is very nice, but it, it is so marred and deformed by ornaments. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Anyhow, so yes, that's that was long-winded to say, Scarlatti on the harpsichord, 
and a book about Clementi. Wow, excellent, excellent. Well, Mark Kroll is a performer, a scholar, an educator, and a passionate advocate for the harpsichord and for early music and he is early music america's 2020 howard meyer brown award winner for lifetime achievement and he joined me via skype thank you what a pleasure and an honor it is to to speak to you today it was equally my pleasure and my honor and just a delight to speak to you in general thank you Thank you.